0: section twenty one of a history of our own times volume two by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter twenty six where was lord palmerston part two this was the massacre of sinope when the news came to england there arose one cry of grief and anger and shame it was regarded as a deliberate act of treachery consummated amid conditions of the most hideous barbarity a clamor arose against the emperor of russia as if he were a monster outside the pale of civilized law like some of the furious and treacherous despots of medieval asiatic history mr kinglake has shown and indeed the sequence of events must in time have shown every one that there was no foundation for these accusations the attack was not treacherous but openly made not sudden but clearly announced by previous acts and long expected as we have seen by the Turkish commander himself, and it was not in breach even of the courtesies of war. Russia and Turkey were not only formally but actually at war. The Turks were the first to begin the actual military operations. More than five weeks before the affair at Sinope, they had opened the business by firing from a fortress on a Russian flotilla. A few days after this act, they crossed the Danube at Vidna and occupied Caliphate, and for several days they had fought under Omar Pasha with brilliant success against the Russians at Oltenitsa. All England had been enthusiastic about the bravery which the Turks had shown at Oltenitsa, and the success which had attended their first encounter with the enemy. It was hardly to be expected that the Emperor of Russia would only fight where he was at a disadvantage, and refrain from attack where his power was overwhelming. Still, there was an impression among English and French statesmen that while negotiations for peace were actually going on between the Western powers and Russia, and while the fleets of England and France were remaining peacefully at anchor in the Bosphorus, whither they had been summoned by this time, the Russian emperor would abstain from complicating matters by making use of his Sebastopol fleet. Nothing could have been more unwise than to act upon an impression of this kind, as if it were a regular agreement. But the English public did not understand at that moment the actual condition of things, and may well have supposed that if our government seemed secure and content, there must have been some definite arrangement to create so happy a condition of mind. It may look strange to readers now surveying this chapter of past history with cool, unimpassioned mind that anybody could have believed in the existence of any arrangement by virtue of which turkey could be at war with russia and not at war with her at the same time which would have allowed turkey to strike her enemy when and how she pleased and would have restricted the enemy to such time place and method of retort as might suit the convenience of the neutral powers but at the time when the true state of affairs was little known in england the account of the massacre of sinope was received as if it had been the tale of some unparalleled act of treachery and savagery and the eagerness of the country for war against russia became inflamed to actual passion it was at that moment that palmerston resigned his office the cabinet was still not prepared to go as far as he would have gone They had believed that the Sebastopol fleet would do nothing as long as the Western powers kept talking about peace. They now believed, perhaps, that the Emperor of Russia would say he was very sorry for what had been done and promised not to do so any more. Lord Palmerston, supported by the urgent pressure of the Emperor of the French, succeeded, however, in at last overcoming their determination it was agreed that some decisive announcement should be made to the emperor of russia on the part of england and france and lord palmerston resumed his place master of the situation this was the decision of which he had spoken in his letter to his brother the decision which he said he had long unsuccessfully pressed upon his colleagues and which would give the allied squadrons the command of the black sea it was, in fact, an intimation to Russia that France and England were resolved to prevent any repetition of the Sinope affair, that their squadrons would enter the Black Sea with orders to request, and if necessary to constrain, every Russian ship met in the Euxine to return to Sebastopol, and to repel by force any act of aggression afterwards attempted against the Ottoman territory or flag. This was not, it should be observed, simply an intimation to the emperor of russia that the great powers would impose and enforce the neutrality of the black sea it was an announcement that if the flag of russia dared to show itself on that sea which washed russia's southern shores the warships of two far foreign states taking possession of those waters would pull it down or compel those who bore it to fly ignominiously into port this was in fact war. Of course, Lord Palmerston knew this. Because it meant war, he accepted it and returned to his place, well pleased with the way in which things were going. From his point of view, he was perfectly right. He had been consistent all through. He believed from the first that the pretensions of Russia would have to be put down by force of arms and could not be put down in any other way. He believed that the danger to England from the aggrandizement of Russia was a capital danger, calling for any extent of national sacrifice to avert it. He believed that a war with Russia was inevitable, and he preferred taking it sooner to taking it later. He believed that an alliance with the Emperor of the French was desirable, and a war with Russia would be the best means of making this effective lord palmerston therefore was determined not to remain in the cabinet unless some strenuous measures were taken and now as on a memorable former occasion he understood better than any one else the prevailing temper of the english people when the resolution of the western cabinets was communicated to the emperor of russia he withdrew his representatives from london and paris on february twenty first eighteen fifty four the diplomatic relations between russia and the two allied powers were brought to a stop six weeks before this the english and french fleets had entered the black sea the interval was filled up with renewed efforts to bring about a peaceful arrangement which were conducted with as much gravity as if any one believed in the possibility of their success the emperor of the french who always loved letter-writing and delighted in what cobden once happily called the monumental style wrote to the russian emperor appealing to him professedly in the interests of peace to allow an armistice to be signed and to let the belligerent forces on both sides retire from the places to which motives of war had led them and then to negotiate a convention with the sultan which might be submitted to a conference of the four powers if russia would not do this then louis napoleon undertaking to speak in the name of the queen of great britain as well as of himself intimated that france and england would be compelled to leave to the chances of war what might now be decided by reason and justice the emperor nicholas replied that he had claimed nothing but what was confirmed by treaties that his conditions were perfectly well known that he was still willing to treat on these conditions But if Russia were driven to arms, then he quietly observed that he had no doubt that she could hold her own as well in 1854 as she had done in 1812. That year, 1812, it is hardly necessary to say, was the year of the burning of Moscow and the disastrous retreat of the French. We can easily understand what faith in the possibility of a peaceful arrangement the Russian emperor must have had when he made the allusion And the French emperor must have had when he met his eye. Of course, if Louis Napoleon had had the faintest belief in any good result to come of his letter, he would never have closed it with the threat which provoked the Russian sovereign into his insufferable rejoinder. The correspondence might remind one of that which is said to have passed between two Irish chieftains. Pay me my tribute, wrote the one, or else. I owe you no tribute replied the other and if england's ultimatum to russia was dispatched on february twenty seventh eighteen fifty four it was conveyed in a letter from lord clarendon to count nesselroda it declared that the british government had exhausted all the efforts of negotiation and was compelled to announce that if russia should decline to restrict within purely diplomatic limits the discussion in which she has for some time passed been engaged with the sublime port and does not by return of the messenger who is the bearer of my present letter announce her intention of causing the russian troops under prince gorchikov to commence their march with a view to recross the Prut, so that the provinces of moldavia and wallachia shall be completely evacuated on april thirtieth next the british government must consider the refusal or the silence of the cabinet of st petersburg as equivalent to a declaration of war, and will take its measures accordingly. It is not, perhaps, very profitable work for the historian to criticise the mere terms of a document announcing a course of action which long before its issue had become inevitable. But it is worthwhile remarking, perhaps, that it would have been better and more dignified to confine the letter to the simple demand for the evacuation of the Danubian provinces to ask russia to promise that her controversy with the port should be thenceforward restricted within purely diplomatic limits was to make a demand with which no great power would or indeed could undertake to comply a member of the peace society itself might well hesitate to give a promise that a dispute in which he was engaged should be for confined within purely diplomatic limits in any case it was certain that Russia would not now make any concessions tending toward peace. The messenger who was the bearer of the letter was ordered not to wait more than six days for an answer. On the fifth day, the messenger was informed by word of mouth from Count Nesselrode that the emperor did not think it becoming in him to give any reply to the letter. The die was cast. Rather truly, the fact was recorded that the die had been cast. A few days after, a crowd assembled in front of the Royal Exchange to watch the performance of a ceremonial that had been little known to the living generation. The Sergeant-at-Arms, accompanied by some of the officials of the city, read from the steps of the Royal Exchange Her Majesty's declaration of war against Russia. The causes of the declaration of war were set forth in an official statement published in the London Gazette this document is an interesting and a valuable state paper it recites with clearness and deliberation the successive steps by which the allied powers had been led to the necessity of an armed intervention in the controversy between turkey and russia it described in the first place the complaint of the emperor of russia against the sultan with reference to the claims of the greek and latin churches and the arrangement promoted satisfactorily by her majesty's ambassador at constantinople for rendering justice to the claim an arrangement to which no exception was taken by the russian government then came the sudden unmasking of the other and quite different claims of prince Menshikoff, the nature of which in the first instance he endeavoured as far as possible to conceal from her majesty's ambassador these claims thus studiously concealed, affected not merely or at all the privileges of the Greek church at Jerusalem, but the position of many millions of Turkish subjects in their relations to their sovereign, the sultan. The declaration recalled the various attempts that were made by the Queen's government in conjunction with the governments of France, Austria, and Prussia to meet any just demands of the Russian emperor without affecting the dignity and independence of the sultan, and showed that if the object of russia had been solely to secure their proper privileges and immunities for the christian populations of the ottoman empire the offers that were made could not have failed to meet that object her majesty's government therefore held it as manifest that what russia was really seeking was not the happiness of the christian communities of turkey but the right to interfere in the ordinary relations between turkish subjects and their sovereign the sultan refused to consent to this and declared war and self-defense. Yet the government of Her Majesty did not renounce all hope of restoring peace between the contending parties until advice and remonstrance proved wholly in vain, and Russia continued to extend her military preparations. Her Majesty felt called upon, by regard for an ally, the integrity and independence of whose empire had been recognized as essential to the peace of Europe by the sympathies of her people with right against wrong, by desire to avert from her dominions most injurious consequences, and to save Europe from the preponderance of a power which has violated the faith of treaties and defies the opinion of the civilized world, to take up arms in conjunction with the Emperor of the French for the defense of the Sultan. Some passages of this declaration have invited criticism from English historians it opens for example with a statement of the fact that the efforts for an arrangement were made by her majesty in conjunction with france austria and prussia it speaks of this concert of the four powers down almost to the very close and then it suddenly breaks off and announces that in consequence of all that has happened her majesty has felt compelled to take up arms in conjunction with the emperor of the french What strange diplomatic mismanagement, it was asked, has led to this singular non sequitur. Why, after having carried on the negotiations through all their various stages with three other great powers, all of them supposed to be equally interested in a settlement of the question, is England at the last moment compelled to take up arms with only one of those powers as an ally? The principal reason for the separation of the two western powers of Europe from the other great states was found in the condition of Prussia. Prussia was then greatly under the influence of the Russian court. The Prussian sovereign was related to the emperor of Russia, and his kingdom was almost overshadowed by Russian influence. Prussia had come to occupy a lower position in Europe than she had ever before held during her existence as a kingdom it seemed almost marvellous how by any process the country of the great frederick could have sunk to such a condition of insignificance she had been compelled to stoop to austria after the events of eighteen forty eight the king of prussia tampering with the offers of the strong national party who desired to make him emperor of germany now moving forward and now drawing back letting i dare not wait upon i would was suddenly pulled up by Austria. The famous arrangement, called afterwards the humiliation of Olmutz, and so completely revenged at Sedova, compelled him to drop all his triflings with nationalism and repudiate his former instigators. The King of Prussia was a highly cultured, amiable, literary man. He loved letters and art in a sort of dilettante way. He had good impulses and a weak nature he was a dreamer a sort of philosopher Monquet. he was unable to make up his mind to any momentous decision until the time for rendering it effective had gone by a man naturally truthful he was often led by very weakness into acts that seemed irreconcilable with his previous promises and engagements he could say witty and sarcastic things and when political affairs went wrong with him he could console himself with one or two sharp sayings only heard of by those immediately around him and then the world might go its way for him he was like rob roy o'er good for banning and o'er bad for blessing like our own charles the second he never said a foolish thing and never did a wise one he ought to have been an aesthetic essayist or a lecturer on art and moral philosophy to young ladies and an unkind destiny had made him the king of a state specially embarrassed in a most troublous time so unkindly was popular rumour as well as fate to him that he got the credit in foreign countries of being a stupid sensualist when he was really a man of respectable habits and refined nature and in england at least the nickname of king clico was long the brand by which the popular and most mistaken impression of his character was signified, End of section twenty one